The last time I visited Studio Wayne McGregor in London's Olympic Park, I couldn't find the rehearsal room I needed. Someone said, just go down that corridor and turn left at the wolf. And sure enough, at the end of the corridor was a lone, stuffed wolf. Now that's how you add a sense of drama to your directions. We're at the studio again, and today the wolf is standing at the entrance. I hope that's a good sign. This is Why Dance Matters, the Royal Academy of Dance podcast. I'm David Jays, and I'm ready to plunge into the almost ridiculously creative mind of Wayne McGregor. I first saw Wayne's work when he danced it himself. So tall, so lean, so rapid, shuttling and angling through moves like no one I'd ever seen. And I've loved watching him continue with his own dance company and increasingly with ballet companies. He's now a resident choreographer with the Royal Ballet and in demand across the world. As well as on stage, he works with fashion, on film. He's even collaborated with ABBA in the futuristic spectacular that is ABBA Voyage. So many things matter to him, but why dance in particular? Let's turn left at the wolf and ask him. Wayne, welcome to Why Dance Matters. Thank you, hello. (laughs) And we are speaking just a few days after the premiere of your latest piece, Untitled 2023 for the Royal Ballet. Beautiful, beautiful piece. How do you feel once something has gone out into the world, something that has existed in the studio, in your head, in conversations with collaborators, and suddenly it's there? Yeah, it is a quite a disconcerting feeling because obviously you're in a particular kind of creative world working on something for a very long time usually. So that Carmen Herrera piece we've been working on since about 2018. Um, and we had COVID in the middle and all of that. So it lives with you a long time and then you're obsessed with it. I think part of the reason one makes dances is that it is an obsession. And so you're just totally immersed in that world. And then all of a sudden you have to give it over to the dancers and over to the public and then it has its own life. And then you get the reaction, you have to deal with the reaction. But it is a, a way of thinking, a way of understanding art because I've been through it so many times. You know, I've had to either abandon these works before or I've been able to like either gift them out or just feel that they've had a a new life in the world. Often I don't revisit them unless they're very, very big works because I just want to change the whole thing. Right. So I kind of, I, I kind of feel you that, can't tinker, can you really? I'm not, I'm not really a tinkerer because I kind of feel that the decisions you make are a constellation of decisions that you make in a particular amount of time. And then all of a sudden, if you start remaking those decisions, it has a kind of a follow-on effect, a set of repercussions, which opens up a whole range of other questions. So you then need to start again. And one of the reasons I try and make sure I always have another piece to go to is so that I can focus all of that obsession into a new set of questions or a developing set of questions. 
but not revisit the work of the past. And not sit brooding about all the decisions you wish yeah, you'd made exactly. a month ago. Yeah. And also partly because I think about work as being a continuum of time and each of the pieces are just markers in this process. I don't feel that they are ever finished objects. I'm not trying to make a finished object, you know. And so all I can do is do this collection of work that then sits in a particular constellation of time and then move on to the next set of ideas. Often preoccupations, though, come back or you revisit things. You know, that's really important. And actually, one of the great things at the Royal, when a work comes back that you've not seen for a few years, you have chance to rework it a little bit. But actually, in large-scale opera and ballet houses, there isn't much time in revivals to revisit. You know, revisiting to me would be revisiting for 12 weeks. You would never get... Something like that. So you may as well make new work. That's the reason for it. Rather than say, no, this is fine, but can we change the set and possibly get a new composer? I know, and and tinkering. I'm just not good at tinkering. You mentioned Carmen Herrera, the artist who designed this amazing white and emerald green environment for the new piece. She sadly didn't get to see the work because she died not long ago at an amazing age, 106. For a lot of her career, she was totally unrecognised, hadn't been able to get the acclaim she deserved, the recognition, didn't get her work out there, which is something that for a choreographer, you need bodies, you need people to foster the work. But I think it happens to lots of artists, not just in visual arts or dance, you know, that you can't actually get the work seen. You have lots of ideas, but you can't either get it made or seen. I mean, what's extraordinary about Carmen Herrera is that she, a Cuban-American minimalist artist, incredible range of work. I met her when she was 102. I'd never met a 102-year-old before who was still working, still practicing, still making her work. And even though she'd been ignored, I mean, she had her first show at the Whitney at the age of 89, and then had this incredibly stratospheric career since then. She stayed in the same place that she had always worked and she just carried on. And it just reminds me, and this is one of the things I love about people like Merce Cunningham, it reminds you that the process of making art is an ongoing endeavor. It's something that you just commit to and just do it. Irrespective of critical feedback or audience or financial resources, you just have to keep doing it. And if you're compelled to do it, you'll find a way to do it. So I remember when I first started choreography, I didn't know anybody in London. I had no financial resources. I didn't come from an elite school. I wasn't part of a company. I just had to start from the beginning and just try. And I think Carmen really teaches us that, that actually she just has kept with her kind of artistic vision, kept working, working. And then you realize retrospectively with her that she's as important a maker as Joseph Albers or Ellsworth Kelly or Newman. Her place in kind of like modernist history has had to be rewritten because this incredible body of work really exists in the world now that we can see. And I just thought to collaborate with her at that point when she was 102, she she was a massive opera fan. She wanted to work on a large scale canvas and the opera house is one of the best canvases in the world to work in. And she was really genuinely excited about the possibility of that. And what's it like working with someone who's not only got that incredible artistic experience, but also the life experience of someone who's who has been around for so long has seen so much and has thought so much well, it's so true because you know in a way your body is a palimpsest it's a receptor of all of your life experiences and that shades everything from the way in which you move to the way in which you think right and that's sometimes we can call that bias sometimes we call that that's our, you know our kind of somatic sense this is really interesting for somebody like that. So she's had this incredible life of working and relationships and travel and meeting extraordinary other artists. She's been in a, an art world conversation, which has taken literally a century. That is extraordinary. But also, you know, I think her work 
teaches us something about how to react to or work with dance. So, you know, if you think about her seemingly very abstract, empty compositions, you could look at that and go, that's just a green triangle on a white page. And some people do do that and immediately dismiss it as they do with some abstract dance, not knowing what it concretely means. Whereas another way to do that is just to dig a little bit deeper to go, well, look at actually how she's precariously balancing that tip into a perspective that vanishes. Look how much white space is on that page in relationship to green space. Just look how she structures that. She calls me structure is these architectural objects just on their ends and look at the negative space through it. And all of a sudden, when you start to question the art that's in front of you, all of these other meanings emerge. And that's what's extraordinary about that work for me, that it's a very physical experience. Because when you think about emotion, emotion doesn't come from the head. Emotion comes from a chemical reaction in your body as your body changes, which we interpret as a particular kind of feeling. So actually, when we're thinking about meaning, meaning is a somatic thing first. And that's really extraordinary. I think minimalist artists like her and like Agnes Martin have really helped us uncover what some of those really extraordinary gifts are. And as soon as you put bodies against those artworks as well, you kind of get different shades of meaning because the human presence is a sort of a meaning maker, isn't it? Well, it's true. Yeah, there there absolutely can't not be. You can't have a body in front of you and it'd be abstract because what we're doing all the time in the brain is trying to seek meaning from things in terms of relationships, how we interact. We're looking for that all the time. We're looking for story all the time. One of the things we tried to do in Untitled 2023 was also work with, we worked with Daniel Lee, who's the creative director of Burberry. And he worked with slashing the bodies in different kinds of formations, which when they moved together, created different kinds of architectural objects, right? So all of a sudden now you've got like live bodies, breathing, fleshy, muscular, live bodies full of redolent meaning, interacting with seemingly abstract spaces, but creating this kind of strange, liminal, almost like sci-fi, apocalyptic, bleak world. For us, that was a really exciting challenge to see how one might be able to balance those ideas and forms so that they come into focus at different points. So sometimes the music is very far forward and the, the body, the dance, if you like, sits slightly back. Sometimes the physicality and the dance is really far forward and the set sits in relief. And sometimes those constellations kind of work together and create a different kind of magic. I've never been keen on an idea that dance always has to sit at the front and experience it when you're working with other art makers. And I always find it super curious when critics write in that way. They kind of like parse down the review into elements that, as if not in interaction. And I understand why one does that. But actually, I think the, the one is to go, how is these things coming in and out of focus of equal merit, equal times? And again, I think Merce is a fantastic example of how that can work and how we've been trained to look at that now and receive it in a very different way than it was 60 years ago. At the same time as you've been working with Carmen Herrera, Margaret Atwood, artists of huge experience, you're also working with the National Youth Dance Company, who are at the beginning of their dance journeys and fresh and bright-eyed. How has that experience been? 
Well, it's been amazing. I mean, I've always worked with young people throughout my career. You know, I started as a dance animateur in East London, where my job was to animate communities through dance. So we've a long history of working with young people. The company we work with about 8,000, 10,000 young people a year anyway, you know, in teaching and working and workshops and creativity. So it's a very natural thing for us to do. The reason I do it is pure joy. That actually when you're, and in this case, you know, surrounded by 35 young artists who have phenomenal physical power, amazing imaginations, lots of energy. They want to challenge you. They want to push you. They want to try and experiment with lots of their own physical attributes of voice. What do they want to say? It's a pleasure to be in the room with them, but also to help them work together, perhaps in ways they haven't done before perhaps start them on a creative journey where they're testing and researching some of the things that they're doing in a way that they haven't done before. And so, yeah, it was a real total pleasure to do that project. And do you see Teenage Wayne in them as well? Were you that exactly that sort of questing, excited, open to the world? I think I was, but I didn't have the same kind of opportunities or groups that one could go into. So it's actually really amazing that the National Youth Dance Company exists. You know, this is a company that exists across the whole of the nation, drawing young people from amazing community youth groups all over and with in really inspiring teachers across the UK who've already planted this seed of creativity and imagination and brilliance in them. You're just harvesting it and taking it a bit further and they go back there and do more. You know, I grew up in some ways where the cultural poverty was a little bit more exposed. I grew up in Stockport, just outside Manchester in the 70s and early 80s. There wasn't really that many opportunities for boys to dance, certainly not creative dance or contemporary dance or exploratory dance. So I ended up doing ballroom in Latin American and disco, those kind of more formal dance things to get a start. But there weren't as many youth group opportunities as there are now. We've spoken to quite a lot of classical dancers on the podcast before and it's interesting because when they start the roadmap is very clear it may not be one they stick to but when you're a young dancer you know what the stages are did you have any sense of where you were going where dance might take you I had no sense of that whatsoever I mean partly because I wanted to be a barrister and I didn't want to dance at all I didn't know that really yeah so I I was super interested in law you know obviously I I used to spend a lot of time in the Manchester Law Courts then when you could go and see that and so I did very like academic A-levels and GCSEs I kind of did all of my art stuff outside of school so it was more like a hobby but then there was a moment where that changed where it felt like I really wanted to dance and I wanted to be doing my own thing but I realized that I had to get my body in better shape and I went and did a dance degree and then went to the states for a while but it wasn't very clear it was after I'd been to the states met lots of those amazing postmodern makers who were alive and still working Trisha Twyla Merce you know seeing the work outside in the park all that free work that you could see without having to buy a ticket seeing John Cage actually conduct a Cunningham event incredible openness and and moments I went oh I'd like to develop this further and I think there's a massive pressure on young people nowadays to know what it is that they want to do and I think it's a real problem because I think what you should be able to do is change and be like water move and change direction until you really find the thing that you're most passionate about because there's nothing worse I would imagine than being in something that you don't really want to be in so I think it's important to shore up your academic skills I think it's important to get a really good literacy in the things that you're really really interested interested in canvas wide for the kind of things that you want to work on but then actually just find these opportunities that really resource you and move into them and try and find a way of making that work for you and clearly mentoring 
young artists, young people is really important to you. It's been a thread through so much of your career, whether it's individual young choreographers or companies of dancers. Did you have those figures at the beginning of your career to kind of light the way? Yeah, absolutely. I think we all need champions. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We need people who are supporting us and pushing us and challenging us and saying, really? And I remember, you know, I made my first piece at The Place in a programme called Resolutions, which is still going on, which is for young makers to make. And you never know what's going to happen in these 12 weeks that are on in Resolutions. You get all sorts of work. I made a 20-minute piece with a group of friends. So half the friends were in London, half of them in Leeds where I went to university. And I would drive every weekend and we'd try and find the space. And we just like, make, we made this short, work called Zeno then we put it on at the place and my first big champion in terms of dance was John Ashford who was the director of the place at that time really amazing man who said okay let's talk about this let's refine it a bit I'll send this on a 12-date European tour which I did he bought me a computer he in those days paid for my posters and gave me a desk in his office and that was the beginning I was the first resident choreographer of the place who hadn't trained at the place which again was an unusual thing I hadn't as I said come from a a kind of like a more formalized background but he had said I see something in you that's interesting and I want to support it and so I think that's really important it's one of the beautiful things about dance actually I think lots of choreographers lots of administrators lots of executive producers they do mentoring as well there's giving back this recursive possibility and in a way it's not just an altruistic thing it's also about keeping in touch with how young voices are thinking about how they want to make work and they're also challenging you about what the systems are that currently exploit work and what are the ethics of that and can that change we all get into very structured ways of working and this is a fantastic way of unbuttoning some of those things that feel very sealed it doesn't happen enough and it has to happen more i think lots of these structures need to be opened up even more but one way to do that is to have a transparent dialogue with younger artists who've got very different questions and who want to push you to think about how you can organize dance the culture the ecosystems of dance in a different way and dance has often been quite a deferential culture partly i guess because it's hinges on that teacher student relationship but it's not always one that encourages questioning from dancers do you feel that's changing well it's definitely changing and you also see it you know in classical ballet because if you think about classical ballet you know there's this whole relationship between sameness and difference you know if you think about a classical ballet core what the attribution is is towards sameness to actually get a sense of a kind of an idealized version of perfection and this incredible machine working together even if you think about classical technique and think about virtuosity you're also working towards an ideal version of what a pirouette is a perfect pirouette or perfect kind of arabesque you're working towards these absolutes of course interpretation comes into that as well but there's a sense in which sameness is really hardwired into the form and in the past, I think there was a much more analogue relationship with dancers where the choreographer would stand on the outside and the dancers would be at the space over there and they would be told what to do. That's totally different now, partly because, you know, young dancers have all this amazing kind of curiosity that they want to express and want to talk with you about. And also with choreographers like me, I'm not the only one, but like me, we want to make pieces with the dancers, not on the dancers. So it's a kind of a co-authored process. It's a process that demands that you bring yourself to the room and you speak and you speak through your body, but you also speak verbally and we try and propagate and experiment, work into ideas together. Wayne, you're also the master of the side hustle. (laughs) Side hustle. (laughs) So many projects where you're involved in film, in other stage shows made by other 
makers in fashion. I have to ask you about ABBA because you're involved in ABBA Voyage, the incredible holographic experience. How, because we think of the ABBA sound, it's such a distinctive sound. How distinctive were they as physical presences. Yeah, I'll talk to you about, I mean, I think it's interesting you say about side hustle, because for me, they're all the central hustle. Right. You know, this is all the same thing. I don't feel it's like, I don't categorize on oh, this time I'm working in ballet, and then I'm going to do a few things on the side. I think what I try and do is put myself in a position where I'm not doing the same kind of thing over and over again, because that allows you to learn from a different kind of experience. So when I'm planning my years, what I try and plan is a range of experiences where sometimes I'm in the driver's seat and curating the artists that might be working on a project and driving the whole thing. And sometimes I'm working with other directors who are driving and I'm servicing their idea. And therefore I have a very different challenge to do, to face. And also I want to be putting myself in a place, dance and. So where dance speaks and is important, but it's not just about dance itself. So that might be working in AI or robotics because I want to understand what some of those technologies are. The technologists need thinkers who are expert in dance making to work out how robots might move or think. There's a very interesting seamless relationship there and it allows us to test technology we would never have access to in the arts. And so one of my big passions for working with ABBA was that one, I used to learn to dance to um, ABBA songs when I was seven and eight, right? That was the first thing. Marjorie Barlow, my um, ballroom teacher would have it on all the time. So in a way that's hardwired into my dance DNA. But the second part of that was we were going to work with state-of-the-art technology that had never been used before, which is a very high-end version of motion capture, which I have worked on before since working in movies like Harry Potter and working with motion capture systems. So a motion capture system is a system which basically takes out your unique physical signature out of you through dots that are put on a body in joint angles. And it gives you a kind of a sense of the way in which that person moves. And so when you see that on anybody, but particularly these amazing stars, Frida has a very particular physical handwriting and Agneta has a very different one. And our job on that ABBA show was partly to get all of ABBA back performing again after 40 years, which was kind of incredible, having Frida sing Fernando to you and be in the room with these incredible artists who wanted to get back performing for this project for the motion capture suit, make them feel comfortable in a motion capture suit because who looks good in a, you know, a lycra unitard with dots on, let's face it, you know. Well, if ABBA don't. <laughs> yeah, no, <one> exactly. <laughs> so doing that, so that was the first part of it, really understanding what made their performances them. They're amazing storytellers, but how does that affect physically how you move? And then working with a, a range of body doubles to remake the whole concert or an idea of a concert from the 1970s within which way they would move. So they had to map and learn how ABBA would move and they had to move in exactly the same way. And then we would mix the masks. And then we made this show, which is actually not a hologram. So it's a very different kind of like technology. But the great thing about it is that it makes you feel that the body is really there. And so you have an embodied experience of it. And that's partly because you can see round the side of that body. It sits there in, in real time. Have you seen it? Oh, you have to go. It's so good. (laughs) You know, what's also amazing about that ABBA show, apart from the fact that it's extraordinary. I was there on Sunday, actually, and I was sat next to somebody whose jaw was literally on the floor because you cannot believe what it is that you're seeing. And I'm not saying it because I was involved in it. It really is shockingly amazing what they've been able to do with recreating a concert. But the other thing about that ABBA show, which is incredible, is everybody is dancing in the auditorium. So that's, you know, eight shows a week, 3,000 people who are all moving. It's the best kind of like flash mob you could ever 
ever want to experience. And everybody is just moving in ways that they don't, they're just the pure joy in that room is explosive. And again, that's what dance is about for me. It's about play, it's about joy. It's about activating all your senses through moving. And I think that show really does that in an extraordinary way. When you're thinking about the next project and you always have quite a lot on the, on the go, so the next and the next and the next, is it about who you want to work with? Is it about what you want to learn? Is it about what the stuff that's in your head that you need to get out there? I mean, it's a combination. I mean, partly because some projects we have to plan very, very far in advance. So I know what some of my commissions are till 2028, right? So I'll know the theatre or the company that I might be working with. I've got obviously a hit list of artists that I want to work with. And part of my job at the very beginning is actually curating who might go well with who for a particular kind of context, for the kind of thing you want to make. So in that way, that's beyond choreography. That's about kind of cultural producing, because also what you have to do then is help find the money to make that work. You find the kind of financial partners. It's not just always the companies that are paying for everything. You kind of build the whole ecosystem to support the work that it is that you want to make. But I definitely have a hit list of, of people that I want to work with. But one of the things that I've learned with collaborators is you need to spend time with them to really work out what ideas might emerge and so what I like to do is give quite an open brief say I would love to work with you on a project let's find the right time for the project to happen rather than saying can you come with me and make this piece now on the Royal Ballet although I've also done that but it must be difficult as sometimes when there must be artists who are used to being the big beast the person who drives their project those people I guess some of them must be fantastic collaborators some possibly not how do you have to also judge whether it's going to be a a useful conversation for you both ease is not always what I go for because I think part of collaboration is also about tension so actually you also want someone an artist is not just going to sit on the fence and just go in the direction that you lead you actually want a bit of provocation a bit of difficulty any artist listening, I don't, I don't actually mean that. No, you want a bit of provocation and you want to work for the collaboration to be meaningful. But I think, you know, I've been really lucky that I've worked with really incredible human beings who've got amazing artistic practice, who want to ask questions of the body through their work. So they've got an interest in dance or they've got an interest in expression through moving that actually is related to how they make and so I've not ever had a problem with collaborators in that way. Of course, we've not always agreed on what the kind of thing is that you're going to make. But actually, the endeavor is the thing that we're really, really committed to. It's this passion to do that. And it's really opened up some fantastic collaborations where we've obviously made the stage event, but also we've made artistic events that have been a byproduct of that. Tacita, for example, Tacita Dean, who worked on the Dante project with us, has two exhibitions of the work which are independent of the work itself. She's produced a book. There's a vinyl with a limited edition print. There's an incredible kind of other way in which you can touch and work with this work. So the work has a bigger sense than just the work on the stage. Although for me, of course, the work on the stage is really vital. You're also this summer programming the Venice Biennale dance stream, which I guess brings you into contact with other choreographers. In Because you know, we're talking about lots of conversations and collaborations yeah. with artists in other media. But I guess it's not often that you get to be in a room with lots of choreographers exchanging well, I think, ideas. I think the great thing about the Venice Biennale, so I've got this Venice Biennale job for four years. And actually my festival is every year. And what that is, is a, an opportunity for me to be able to commission some of the world's greatest artists or the greatest young artists to make new work and support them in Venice. So this year we have 
a few hundred artists coming to Venice. We're running a, an education program with 20 young makers who are working with Simone Forti, Forsai, Sheishin, these incredible choreographers. So of course you've got the contacts, right? Because we're in festivals all over the world with brilliant choreographers. I'm an avid dance fan. I love watching dance. I see a lot of dance. But I think the particular thing about the Venice job is being able to call an artist or an artist to offer something up to you of projects that they're dreaming about and thinking about and being able to help them realize it. So we haven't really shown my work in Venice. The work is really about other artists' work and how we might be able to facilitate that. But me programming it is in dialogue with one another, you know, us working on ideas that really enliven a new kind of conversation with the art biennale or the architecture biennale, whichever it sits in, 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 in alternate years. The other thing is I get to select the gold line and the silver line for lifetime achievement and new work. So, you know, my first golden line was Jermaine Cogni, this incredible Senegalese artist. Last year it was Suburu Teshigawara. This year it's Simone Forti, this 87-year-old, incredible, basically, inspiration for the Judson Group, whose work is all collected in major museums. And at the same time, young artists. So the silver line went to Una Doherty, brilliant Irish artist that we were able to commission for this season. The Tower Dance are going to get the silver line this year from China, these incredible artists who work with very rigorous dance making. But that has a financial contribution. We commission them to make something, their dream project later. So it's a meaningful prize in a way. So it's a, it's a complete joy to do that project because it is about curating. I'm not making anything. And then when they're there, it's like having this most brilliant festival where all your favorite artists are performing every night. It's kind of a, yeah, a real honor to do that. The last time I was here in your amazing studios, which was a few years ago, I remember you saying kind of in passing, oh, one of the next big things would be AI for the dance to think about. And I thought, yeah, sure, Wayne. Yeah, <laughs> right. okay, and... But okay, I now bow to your prophetic genius. It's something that, that a lot of creative artists are kind of nervous about, isn't it? It's something that people are wondering about whether the unique kind of artist mark, whether the unique human spirit is going to be in some way threatened by that. How, how are you feeling about our new AI overlords? Well, I think the first thing to say is AI is not one thing. And I think when we talk about AI, we tend to lump it together as one set of principles. And I think we have to have a bit more of a sophisticated conversation about what are the areas of AI that are problematic and what are the areas right now of AI that actually are really life enhancing and empowering. For me, I'm interested in the conversation around AI because I think the possibilities are really extraordinary. You know, we built a, an AI system with Google, which basically recognizes physical signature and is able to reproduce physical options in the style of certain dancers. So that's kind of a really interesting thing. We're able to go, okay, these are some permutations of a phrase that have never been done before because they've basically rejected all of the past versions of that in the data set. So these are novel new moves but they can be danced in the style of a certain dancer because it's been trained on their, their AI set. So you can recognize it as that dancer doing it. So that's a really interesting conversation around empathy and what we feel about recognizing somebody else's voice. And that's really interesting then when we think about empathy and robotics. So for example, in robots right now, if I were to bring up a fist as if to hit you, 
and the robots saw that as a fist, as a threat, they'd react in a particular way. But we have got a thing around intentional empathy. So we know the intention of that, because I'm kind of smiling or my body's in a, not a position of force, that you go, he's not really going to hit me, that's a joke. So there's something really interesting about that space between how do we create empathy? What is the physical gesture and the signal and how does that work? So I'm excited in the potential of AI also in working with young people, perhaps that have disabilities. I'm interested in AI's possible repercussions in the future. So wouldn't it be interesting for me to make a piece that I make completely an AI with no human hand and see if critics notice the difference? One of the great things about ABBA, which is really interesting, is people still think those are real people, body doubles on there, even though they've seen it. You know, they they believe that to be the case. I'd be curious to combine some technologies, think about motion capture with AI that allows you to have Merce Cunningham back performing live on this table in real time that we can walk around. So I think there are lots of ways in which AI is really extraordinary as a new kind of creative facilitation tool, but we do have to discuss the ethics of it. We have to discuss what it means, what are the constraints, how can we kind of build policy around it to understand it. But creatives have to be in the center of that conversation. Innovators have to be at the center of that conversation. And to be in the center of the conversation, you have to be working with the materials. You can't just watch on the outside and go, none of this is interesting. You have to be in it to have any kind of real experience, real kind of tacit experience of what's going on. One of the things that makes you a really lovely interviewee is your optimism. There's a lot of positive energy. Is that, and I guess that is you, but is that also part of the essential toolkit that when you walk into a room, when you go into a meeting, into a, a rehearsal, you're bringing that kind of energy into the space? Well, hopefully, because your job is to enable, it's to enable and open up other people's creativity and that then charges your creativity and I think that our making is you know 80% psychology because it's about helping place people in the right state of preparedness to be open and vulnerable and raw and to make things right and if you can do that one-to-one you have to find different skills to do it in bigger groups you know sometimes I'm working with like you know might be on a film set you're working with a thousand people how is it that there's an easement there, you know, that there's a sense in which people want to do that work and explore with you in real time. So I do think that's really important, but I am optimistic. You know, I am optimistic because I think there's a lot of joy and love and positivity in the world. There's a lot to explore. There's a lot of really exciting things happening. Of course, there are lots of problems, but I think we need to be having the conversation on balance. having whizzed around planet mcgregor it's now time to step off but before we do that one final question which is why does dance matter to you i don't really think dance is separate from me i don't find it as a category out there and other i feel it's just central to me i think it is me it's the core of me so i couldn't really separate dance from my being and so when you ask me that question it's like why are you why do you matter to you <laughs> what is it that actually you want to say in the world what is it that you want to share what is it you want to make happen and i've chosen to try and do that and make things happen through my body and through that exchange of energy with other people and together collectively i think we can make real change in conversation with wayne you hold on tight and enjoy the whoosh of thought. 
I hope you liked that. I had a great time. Links to as many of Wayne's projects as we can manage, there are so many, are in our show notes and, of course, links to the RAD's work and socials. Please do subscribe, like or review the podcast so that more people can find Why Dance Matters. Our guest today was Wayne McGregor. Why Dance Matters is made by the RAD team of Neve Carey Furness, Keisha Dodd and Katie Hagen. And our artwork is by Bex Glendinning. And if you're venturing into the woods and worried about wolves, there's no better companion than our producer, Sarah Miles. I'm David Jays. Take care and see you soon. <laughs>